In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, Ezra Klein, the co-founder of Vox, discusses his groundbreaking new book, Why We're Polarized, with best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell. Their conversation explores how and why American politics have become polarized around identity, why the system has become so toxic, why we participate in it, and what it means for our future. The conversation was recorded on January 30th, 2020, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Welcome to New York. Thank you. It's surprisingly intimidating to do an event here with you, because you come and normally you do a book event and people are excited to see you, but you come and do an event here with Malcolm Gladwell and people keep coming and they're like, I am so excited about tonight's moderator. <laughs> that is, that is so, first of all, so not true, but I appreciate the sentiment. But um, no, we are all here to see and hear you. Um, you don't, uh, did I, am I wrong? Did, do you say at one point in the book, in fact, that you don't like New York? I do. <laughs> I just wanted to get that and up. And I want to I say I'm going to hold my ground on this point. Uh, among other things, every place, so I've come from outside LA, from Irvine, California, I lived in DC for many years. And I find both of those places, LA and then particularly DC, are just filled with New Yorkers telling you how much better New York is. <laughs> so. I have developed, and this will go directly to the core themes of the book, a very strong oppositional identity to New York yeah. because my identities as a proud Californian and, and, and district denizen have so often been threatened, challenged, and otherwise mocked. Yeah. <laughs> but, you... but also, have you been here? Like, I, I was on the, the sub, oh my God. You were on the what? You were on the subway. Subway, is it's like trash everywhere, it's, it's a lot. What, what subway were you on that was? <laughs> I've been, I've been late to a lot of stuff today. <laughs> the um, F train did not do me well. As someone who was in DC for many years, which has, you know, our subway system looks like Paris next to DC's. <laughs> right? That's, that's fair. The, the DC subway has the advantage of being, it's like the New York subway, if the New York subway were clean but didn't go anywhere. And yeah. BART, in SF, which I will admit that New York is much better public transport than anywhere I've ever been um, elsewhere in the US. BART is like, it's just a light rail system. It's not actually a useful way to get around the city. Yeah, yeah. It's very disappointing. Wait, this, build things th this, um, this discussion um, uh, gets us into uh, something that is relevant to your book, which is, you talk, you're, this is a book about identity. And I was curious, we're describing at the moment regional identifications. Mm -hmm. um, can you list all of the ways, all of the, all of the identities that are relevant to Ezra Klein, and then rank them in order of importance to Ezra Klein? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, as it happens, I have a board here. And, uh, um, I'm, I'm going to write them down. Hold on. I have a, a, a thing in there where I do talk about this a bit. One of the big points I try to make in the book, because it's explaining how, or making an argument that identity is a dimension, not just of human life, but of politics, and needs to be taken seriously, and, and I, there's a lot of evidence on the score in the book, identity is a fundamental driver of polarization itself, not policy and politics. So there's a great study that I, I talk about in there where Liliana Mason, who's a political scientist at the University of Maryland, she shows that if you look at Republicans whose policy positions should make them Democrats or Democrats whose policy positions should make them Republicans, that fact of their policy crossing the line does a lot less to restrain their dislike for the other party 
than if they have identities across the line. So if you are a Democrat, but you're in the South and you're an evangelical Christian and so on and so forth, you have a bunch of Republican-leaning identities. That will do a lot more to make you friendlier to Republicans than just believing that Republicans are Ezra. right about everything. Ezra, I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <laughs> setting it up. No, no, but this, can I just say, this is, by the way, something that I uh, totally uh, uh, predicted would happen. Um, <laughs> And in fact, you declare, in very, at the very beginning of this book, you, you make it very clear this is a book about policy. It's not going to be a book about characters or personalities or... Yeah, human beings are untrustworthy and fallible. You're, you're, and you're doing the exact same thing. You're refusing to talk about yourself. Damn it, talk about yourself. All right, my most important identities. I want your list of your... I'm going to write them down because I'm going to so, discuss them. I'm trying to think of how I would think about what makes an identity most important to me. So, father... <laughs> It's hard to rank identities until you challenge them. Father is probably right now the okay. thing I'm thinking about the most. I'm away Father. from my son, and that's hurting. Was it really that um, hard? Okay, keep going. Father and husband. <laughs> so deeply rooted, I'm a Californian, and I California. take pride in that. I'm a journalist, and I think a yep. lot about that. Yep. I'm the son of an immigrant, and that identity is important to me. I'm Jewish. Um, mm -hmm. I have a linked world of identities around politics, but I think easily stated I'm a liberal. Okay. Uh, what are my other core identities? I dislike Manhattan. And that's, well, no, that's, that's I hold part that of very, I hold that very close to my heart. We're going to dig and into I your think, and, and, and I think there's actually important kinds of identities that people do hold close. I have a set of values that I think of as identities. Vegan is actually a very important identity to me, has become increasingly so in the past couple of years. And for better and for worse, I try to, I like, there is, I have an identity that I am fair-minded, that I try to be generous to people I'm in disagreement with. Those are, those are ones that I try to think about because I want to embody them in my work and life. And so those I've sort of self-consciously tried to build into identities, not just things I think are good in the world. I try to push myself to see that as something that I am, not something yeah. that I believe. So we have eight here. Father, Californian, journalist, immigrant son, Jewish, liberal, uh, oh, seven, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, vegan. No, vegan and eight. Nice person. Um, <laughs> can you... I don't think those are nice person. Nice is different. <laughs> what, can, you, um, uh, can you rank these, though? What's, if, you, if you had to, do you think, first of all, do you think it's useful to rank them? No. No. Do you think each of these is an equal? If I said you had to get rid of one of these as a descriptor, could you do it? I mean, as descriptors, yes, some of them matter a lot less to me than others. I don't care if the world sees me as vegan, and I'm a little looser in that than I am in other things. Whereas I, for historical reasons related to my tribe, I would not want to give up the identity of Jewish. I would not yeah. let you take that from me. Yeah, yeah. Would, um, like if, I guess a better, another way of, of, of saying this is, which of these could you, would you be willing to change? Well, I don't so want to you, change being a father. I think that one's well established okay. at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would be, I think that there, I can imagine a lot of contexts in which I would change political identities. You I do. could, I, yes, very much. Um, and you think have you could end time. up being... I didn't a couple years ago actually self-identify as liberal, and I had a reason for that, but I've changed my mind on that in the past couple of years. So it's actually an identity that I've changed in terms of whether or not I claim it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, would you ever convert to Catholicism or... I mean, that's a, is that an identity that you would ever consider? Um, is that conceivable? It 
is hard for me to imagine Catholic conversion um, <laughs> for reasons not related to the identity. One of the but things wait, here just, that we're... Yes. just say, one of my favorite, because I, I want to talk a lot more about religion, because I think religion is super interesting. Um, I've always wondered, um, what is the, if you are Jewish and you're going to convert, what's the most likely faith you're going to convert to? Atheist. <laughs> <laughs> There's, a, there's an old joke um, that Jews, there's a joke that a kid comes home from uh, Catholic school and he says, does like, what did you learn today? And he says, uh, well, we learned about the three gods, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the dad says, son, we're, we're Jewish. We believe in one God and he doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there's a, you know, there are well-known conversion pathways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of uh, politically conservative Protestants end up as Catholics, particularly recently. Um, that's a kind of known pathway. Mm -hmm. But the Jewish to Catholic pathway, it's like, I mean, it's, it happened in the, in the 17th century at the point of a, you know. It's not a super happy memory. <laughs> well, not, no, people did it, were forced to do it, but no one did it voluntarily. I was just always sort of interested in me because I always thought that if you were, you know, I can, the, the gap between being a, a student of the Talmud and being a Jesuit seems to be quite uh, As a principle, and one reason I think Jewish identity is very important to people who don't keep the faith, yeah. which is true for me, um, is that identities as a general rule root, reinforce, and activate under threat. And so an identity like Jewish mm -hmm. um, comes under threat a lot. Uh, and that's true in general. The identities that lay fallow are the ones that don't get brought up in daily life, the ones that don't um, come up very often. There are things, I mean, I don't declare myself a TV watcher, right? Or I told you what my diet is. Whereas actually, I'll put this differently. People who become vegan end up holding that identity close because it's a constantly threatened identity. People yeah. laugh at vegans, right? They're the splinter Hezbollah-like movement of the vegetarians. But people who are not, don't run around. If you asked that question to me five years ago, I wouldn't have said, I'm an omnivore. That's an important identity yeah, for me. Yeah. So identity often, which is relevant for the political dimension of the book, identity operates under threat. It gets stronger under threat. And that's how it tends to, not the only way it can activate, but a strong way it activates. And Jewish identity, the main thing you learn about being a Jew is that the Jewish identity has often been threatened. Yeah. So it operates under a sense of constant like historical threat. Because I was, you know, because the, the reason I ask this question is I think something I've always thought about is that all of us have a list like this. I have a version of that list, and so does everyone in the audience. And I always wonder, do, do the, does our ranking, our implicit ranking, change over the course of the day, over the course mm -hmm. of, depending on the situation we're in, or is it pretty, like I was thinking of my mom's ranking. My mom it probably doesn't change. My mom would put probably Christian first, mother second, Canadian third. And I sort of figure, I don't think she's gonna deviate from wife. You know, it's interesting, you just made me realize that I put Californian and didn't think about American. Well, I was gonna follow up on that as well. That was, cause that's something that you- Which is interesting because there's actually a study in there that that's abnormal. Yeah. That um, over time, we, people have come to rank their national identity much higher than state identities. But, um, but when you put me on the spot, the thing that came to mind was that I was a Californian, yeah. which I think might be because I've moved back there in the last year, so I've been thinking about it more. You move, and you move back to Northern California. Yes, which you, is not where I grew up. Do you, do you, in your mind, distinguish, do you say I'm a Northern Californian now or not a Southern Californian anymore, or do you? 
No, um, I just say I'm a Californian. I don't yet feel rooted enough in Northern California to have that be an identity. Yeah. Because it's but, new. By the way, it's a weird identity. You grew up in Irvine, Ca Irvine County, Irvine, right? Yes. And now you live in Berkeley? Oakland. Oakland. I mean, Oakland and Irvine County are about as far apart as you can get in America, right? What do they have in common? I don't know about as far apart as you can get in America, but they're far. They're, 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 they have I mean, differences. I mean, that's a, it's an interesting identity to have as Californian, and to because that identity is um, is is containing uh, uh, two country. I mean, two very very different. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, if you ask me what composes an Irvine identity, the the reputation Irvine has is for being boring basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I think about it, the primary thing that I think about is an incredibly immigrant-heavy community. Um, so the place I grew up in, the school I went to, uh, I grew up in a very diverse space, and particularly as I've, my, father is a, my father came to this country in the 70s from Brazil. So the way I think about, if you ask me about Irvine, the thing I would tell you about it at a sociological level, not at a I, how it felt growing up in it level, is that it very deeply rooted in me a belief that diverse places can be and are great places. And so when I hear all this about, which is dominant in our political conversation, about how you lose these very essential things and what is in America if it's not this way that it was and these other, I grew up in a part of America that was majority, minority, racially from the moment I could sense it. And it was a wonderful place full of amazing people. And so that does not feel that different than Oakland. Now, in terms of other cultural dimensions, Oakland's very different than Irvine. Um, and probably people in Oakland be pissed at me for even comparing them. Yeah. No, but I, what we just went through is a version of the problem that you're focused on, that I had a stereotypical view of, I had a polarized view of Irvine, mm -hmm. right? As a kind of Republican. Oh, right. Place. I wasn't even thinking about that. Right? Yes. That it's and a, I realize now a that Republican I, place. Yeah. And I, it, and that's because I don't know Irvine. I just drive through and I spend all my time if I go to Southern California. Elected its first Democrat in 2018 to the House. Oh, but, Katie Porter, who's awesome. But I'm guessing you're not from Newport Beach. No. Right? So that's what I think of when I think of Irvine. I think of Newport Beach. But you're talking about inland Irvine County. I guess it's technically a little inland from New. They're very close. They're yeah, right yeah, here. Yeah. I, I don't I'm, I'm worried we might be getting too deep into no, no, but, Orange County geography but, with New York no, audience. No. <laughs> but what, what I'm interested in is you're describing, what's fascinating about your book is that you're describing in a certain way the hardening of of identity and of, of our identifications with various ways of, with various self-descriptors. Mm -hmm. And I'm continually puzzled about why they've hardened, right? It's, I mean, I agree with you that they've hardened, but it's weird to me, because it, so, it strikes me that why wouldn't they be fluid? Well, there's the things that you've described, these eight descriptors, first of all, there's eight descriptors you have for themselves, and they don't have any logical connection, right? They're all different totally different things. What I don't understand is that why one moment you can't act like a Orange County person, and the next person time you only think about yourself as a father, and the next person you're thinking totally in terms of a journalist trying to... So I think we do. Yeah. I mean, that's very much my theory of identity, which is that a huge mistake we make is to call identity singular, right? Identity politics. But nobody's singular, and things get activated in different ways at different times, and it's very, I mean, this is always Obama's line on this. Uh, if you go back to his 04 DNC speech, he says, you know, we coach Little League in the blue states, 
We believe, we don't like uh, federal agents snooping around libraries in the red states. His whole idea is that we are different when we are not being triggered by political spin masters and pundits who slice and dice us. And my counter on that is not that he's wrong, he's deeply right. It's just that as our political identities link to other identities and enlarge, and we can talk about how that's happening, they're constantly under threat. There's a very large industry devoted to activating them, threatening them, like go on Twitter for two minutes. It's all about activating political identities, at least if you're following those kinds of things. And then they root deeper. Um, it's not the only thing going on, and then you get away from Twitter and you're a dad again, or a husband, or you know, you're out and you're a CrossFitter, which is a very powerful identity for some people. But, um, but when you're dealing with politics, the more the identities come together, the more they root. I'll just give one um, uh, example of this. So there's a political scientist from Irvine named Michael Tesler, and he's looked at racialized controversies in the 90s and now. And so he looked at polling on the O.J. Simpson trial or, to be more local, the Bernard Goetz trial of, of the subway shootings. And then looking at similarly racialized controversies today like George Zimmerman or in a different way, should 12 Years a Slave win an Oscar? And these always split the country. But in the 90s, those controversies did not map onto party at all. Republicans and Democrats had more or less the same views on them. Today, they map overwhelmingly onto party. 69% of Democrats said 12 Years a Slave should win an Oscar. 12% of Republicans did. As you link identities together and more conflicts activate them, that identity just gets stronger and the other side gets more um, infuriating to you. Yeah, yeah. One, two, two things I want to discuss is you to talk about that puzzled me about this phenomenon, that I don't understand why certain things aren't stronger moderators. So we, we touched on religion before. Um, why isn't, you, you would think if you were a Martian landing in America and you see how extraordinarily religious this country is, you, could, you, you would think intuitively that religion must be the great moderator of political difference because the most important relationship religious people have is to God and God does not belong to a party, and you would think that that identification would swamp. Yeah. So why hasn't religion played that function? So there's an argument that at other times it did, and there are a lot of people, I'm not, I don't actually believe this, but I will say to represent it, that a lot of people believe that a cause of our political polarization, I don't think any political scientists believe this to my knowledge, but a lot of conservative pundits believe that our political polarization is a function of religion declining in this country, and as a result, our political identity is coming to be more salient. Andrew Sullivan is an uh, adherent of this view, and, and so are a number of other people. One reason I don't buy it is that if you go look at other times of extraordinarily high polarization, so the Civil War, you will find a lot of religion in that debate. Mm -hmm. But the religion was a broadly scattered enough identity or force that it actually in some ways amplified the conflict because people felt that they had God on their side on, in, in a way that I find chilling on both sides of that. And so religion has been there at times of high polarization and been there at times of low polarization, but religion can be moderating or it can be um, conflict orienting depending on how you understand it and depending on how linked it is to other things. Story I don't tell in the book, but it's in a book called Democracy for Realists um, about Ireland. And uh, the way it is related in there is somebody is going through and going through Ireland and traveling through Ireland and meets, um, I don't know who it was, says, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And the guy says, well, I'm an atheist. And the guy says, yeah, that's fine, but are you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic <laughs> atheist? Which is one of these ways in which religion 
can, I was talking about this in a way with Jewish identity earlier, it can stand in for things that are not your relationship with God. It can mean much more or much less than a relationship with God. Yeah, yeah. But it's not, you know, I, 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 when you, in the discussion of, in your book of religion, I thought of my, my mom, my parents moved to rural Ontario in 1970. My mom is the only black person for miles around, moving to a very conservative small town. You would think, oh, she's gonna have difficulty, you know, being accepted by the town. No difficulty whatsoever. Why, because, they re because my mother's very religious, the town's very religious. Mm. Everyone's like, oh, Joyce is a Christian. And, you know, she starts hanging out with all of these ministers and, you know, feminist Christians. And everyone forgets that she's black. Um, and so I, that was, as a kid, I was like, oh, this is a beautiful thing about religion. Is it that, that identity overwhelms other identities and makes people forget um, sort of more trivial differences. But it's weird how that doesn't, it doesn't work that way in kind of once you leave small it, town Ontario. It, it warps so often. Um, I do not, I meditate a lot. I don't claim Buddhist as an identity. I don't think of myself as a Buddhist. But as somebody who reads a lot of Buddhism, I always find it very, I guess I'll use the same word again, chilling, that the Rohingya massacres and genocide and displacement is being committed by Buddhists, right? There's something about the there's something about seeing an ethical and philosophical and spiritual framework that you understood to be peaceful and restraining that it isn't or doesn't have to be, that it, you just recognize how powerful some of these forces are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I'm puzzled why it doesn't moderate more is um, occupation. So mm -hmm. we know that over the last, you know, that people's, jobs have taken up larger, it seems to have taken up, I think there's some evidence for this, uh, kind of larger psychological importance in, and certainly larger practical importance in people's life. We work longer hours, we spend more time in getting educated um, to prepare for jobs in the workplace. So you would think that workplace identities would be so strong that they would overwhelm a lot of this political polarization. If I'm a doctor and I go to med school for X number of years and then do a residency and then do specialty training and finally I'm a plastic surgeon, how do I have time to even think about whether I'm, you know, what, why would my political identity, which is something that I didn't spend any money on or any, didn't do eight years of training for, why would that matter to me once I'm a? It probably matters to you less. I mean, so I think there are a couple interesting things in that. One is that, let me make the argument, or try on the argument, because I'm not sure I believe it, that it is moderating. I think that embedded in some of what you're saying is that our politically polarized identities have risen to some unbelievable fever pitch of conflict, which I think to many of us, and almost certainly if you're here interested in a book called Why We're Polarized, to you, it feels that they have. One of the things I, I note in the book is that if you look at social divisions in this country right now, if you look at things like political violence, it's much lower than it has been at other times. I mean, go look at the 1960s, look at the number of political assassinations, urban riots, Kent State. We are very angry in our politics, and I think the big problem with polarization is the way it makes the political system cease to function for institutional design reasons. But we don't, for all of the fever pitch of that conflict, if you experience it on Twitter or cable news, most people are quite checked out of it. 
Mm -hmm. um, most people are not paying all that much attention to it at all, and that might be because these other identities are much more important to them. I just did a focus group of undecided-ish voters in Pennsylvania, and mostly what they said about politics was they tuned it out because it was all too angry. Like, they had views, but they didn't want to be involved in it because they had to worry about work and they had to worry about their kids and other things. So for a lot of the people here, politics is a essential hobby. It's, it doesn't necessarily compete with their work, but it's a little bit like CrossFitter or, you know, there are people who really are out there practicing politics every day, going and organizing their neighbors to get a bridge built or, you know, organizing in the anti-Trump resistance to make sure that so-and-so is elected to the House. But a lot of people are following politics the way people follow a sport. They're tweeting at people they don't like. They're doing it from the comfort of their own homes when it is convenient. It has unpleasant emotional ramifications. But beyond that, it's actually not that strong, and they're not really acting on it in a committed, consistent way. When you say, that's the third thing I want to talk about, which is um, when you say a lot of people are following politics now like it's a sport, and you, there's a chapter in the book where you make this argument very quite in, in a very fascinating way. Um, and so it takes on, for the politically committed and completely interest, interested, um, politics takes on many of the kind of psychological dimensions of, a, of, a, of an addiction to a game. Um, but the weird thing about being a sports fan, and I am a rabid sports fan, is that, um, and I am a polarized rabid sports fan in the sense that I, I have teams that I root for, and, but it doesn't make me hostile to people who, it's a, it's a community. If you were, if I'm a crazy Toronto Raptors fan and you're a crazy Golden State Warriors fan, I don't hate you. In fact, I would quite happily talk to you for hours. I would welcome the fact that we have this shared body of thing that we're both rabid about. And I would delight in hearing your arguments for, and by the way, most 90% of sports fans are exactly like this. I've had innumerable conversations with other crazy sports fans over the years, and we delight in each other's differences. It's, it seems wholly unlike politics in that respect. I, I don't, you know, a political conversation can literally drive me out of my mind with someone who disagrees with me, but it never happens in sports. So I have trouble imagining you disagreeing with somebody in a way that you actually become disagreeable. One, I've known you enough that you seem almost pathologically unwilling to get into conflict with people. I get into conflict with people. So <laughs> I remember, and you'll remember on, when you were on my podcast not long ago, I asked you, like, convince me to be a sports fan. Like, convince me of the stakes. I don't know enough about sports fandom, to be honest, to, to make an argument on this one way or another. The only thing I will say is that I have enough rooting in Brazilian football, and I read a Bill Bryson book about soccer hooligans to mm -hmm. suggest that sometimes sports fandom can turn darker and it gets competitive. I love the fact that when you talk about sports, your first point of reference is a book written by my first point an intellectual. <laughs> my, my first point of reference was Brazil, but yes, my second was, my second is Bill Bryson. Because this to me is actually like why- Pele, maybe? No, no, no. This is a work by a very prominent intellectual a couple years ago. Sure. <laughs> I will, I, will make no, I will make no excuses. Actually, it's a funny thing about the book. The, like this third most, the third most common thing I have been asked is somebody read the book and like, you played nose tackle in high school? I know, I was gonna bring that up. I was like, good Lord, Ezra, what? Now it's you a, tell me. It's a, it's, a, it's a, playing sports seems very different than getting attached to it. Look, I don't think all, all identities become conflictual. They yeah. can, but there's a very, there's a very big difference between considering someone an outgroup 
and just seeing them as another group, even part of your group, as you're saying there, and this goes to your point about the fluidity of identities. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what it would be like. You said you're a Toronto Raptors fan. That's basketball. Great. <laughs> See, I know sports. Um, if somebody came and said, Toronto Raptors suck and you suck, it's, you'd probably get annoyed at them. But I think one of the things you're saying here is you are talking to people as a sports fan. Like, in fact, that's how you even claimed the identity a couple minutes ago. You weren't saying, I'm a rabid Toronto Raptors fan, though I'm sure that's true. You said, I'm a rabid sports fan. And having actually, because I enjoy sports journalism, just not actual sports, um, having read a lot of sports journalism and read some of your work on this, you really enjoy the analytics of the game, so you have an identity there that's quite inclusive. Um, I think that in politics, the problem is that it is deeply zero-sum and the stakes are very high. And the higher they get, the harder it is to see us as just, I have, and I will, I will cop to this myself, I have a deep distaste for people. I actually am totally fine talking to, I'm a liberal, I will talk to rabid conservatives all day. I enjoy it, I learn a lot. The people I dislike, and I've met a lot of them over the years in DC, is people who actually understand politics as a fascinating sport. Um, the people who actually follow it because they, there are a lot of journalists who report on campaigns and in the middle of a very hard fought, very tough, very close election, you'll be out at a bar covering something in Iowa and they'll say, isn't this great? And I always think to myself, you are a sociopath. <laughs> because the only reason we're there is that the stakes of who wins and loses are very, very high. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is I think that things are warped by a feeling of in-group, out-group competition. Whereas, you know, and similarly in religion, as somebody who is culturally Jewish and is interested in a lot, I, I love speaking. I have very good friends who are priests. It's wonderful. Like, I love talking to people about religion. But it's not a threat to the things I believe in for that to be true. Um, one of the arguments I make throughout the book is that things really matter how you structure them. And in politics, ultimately, there is this huge question of who wins and wields power. And so things that begin positive sum, there's no particular reason to your point that the fact that you're conservative, not actually, but hypothetically, and I'm a liberal, can't actually make us a very productive team in thinking about how to solve an issue because we both have different insights. Is why I love reading Tyler Cowen or Ross Douthat or people who have a different view on this than I do. But because so much of it collapses down ultimately to who has the power to pass a bill, things that could be positive sum become zero sum. And then when it collapses down to who's gonna win the election, um, it becomes even more conflictual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you um, talk a little bit about the idea of sorting? You touched on it a little bit earlier, but I think it's worth digging into a little bit because it helps to frame a lot of Yeah, words. so this is the macro story of the book, um, which is, Polarization does not refer to disagreement, extremism, bitterness. It refers to opinions, affiliations, identities, et cetera, clustering around two poles. That's it. That's the whole definition. It's nothing more than that. Um, and an argument that, it's not an argument to make, a true thing about the world is that what has happened over the past 50 or 60 years is disagreements that used to be unsorted by political party become sorted by political party. Uh, I always think it's a fascinating fact about American politics that the Civil Rights Act had, was a completely bipartisan bill that had a higher proportion of congressional Republicans vote for it than Democrats, but was passed and signed by a Democratic president. Medicare also had a very high number of Republican votes, which is only to say that at that time, 
obviously the Civil Rights Act was an incredibly controversial, divisive, brutal fight in American life. It's a central conflict in American history. It just wasn't sorted by party. It was sorted by race, it was sorted by values, even by ideology, not by party. Um, over the last 50 years, we have sorted ideologically, so there used to be conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. In Congress, certainly, there are no such things now. Um, there's no Democrat more conservative than any serving Republican, of which there, there used to be many like that. We've sorted much more, so we've sorted by ideology, we've sorted by race. The parties used to be not that dissimilar in terms of the racial composition. Democratic Party's now about 50% non-white, the Republican Party's 90% white. We've sorted by religion. Again, they used to be quite similar, Democratic Party. The single largest religious group in the Democratic Party now is a religiously unaffiliated. Republican Party's overwhelmingly Christian. We've sorted by geographic density. Um, if you go back into the 20th century, how, how dense the area you live in does not predict party affiliation. Now there's no city that is dense in the country that votes Republican, and overwhelmingly rural areas do vote Republican. And this goes down into a lot of things, psychology, culture, I talk about Whole Foods and Cracker Barrels, um, which are, um, De House Democrats represent 78% of all Whole Foods locations, but only 27% of Cracker Barrel locations. So we've sorted, these disagreements, everything, these disagreements or demographic dimensions, they all pre-existed this sorting process. We had, um, all this was here. It just didn't align by party, and now it does. And as it does, as the two parties become more ideologically and demographically distinct, it activates a lot of this identity threat. It creates a rational fear of the other party. I'll just offer one more example. I, I think this is amazing. The 1976 Republican Party platform, it has a discussion of abortion in it. And it says, in our party are people who believe abortion should be available on demand whenever, and people who believe it should never be available. And we respect that difference of opinion. Um, a couple years later, that issue obviously begins to sort very distinctly by party. But Joe Biden, it's funny, I mean, this is all in living memory. Joe Biden was a pro-life Democrat. Um, he voted, and he said it was hard votes, but he voted for something uh, that was like against Roe early on. Um, now he's come and said we absolutely need to protect Roe. Um, similarly, if you even just go back to 96, Bill Clinton's immigration platform just reads like Donald Trump now. I mean, it reads completely different than the Democratic Party today. So you always had these divisions and disagreements that they just didn't sort by party. And so the other party was a lot less threatening to you, not because of some weird psychological identity thing we have, although those things are, are real and, and, and extant, but because it actually was less threatening. There were people who believed what you believed even in the other party, and that lowered the stakes of political conflict. Yeah, your, your, um, your magazine, Vox, wrote a really interesting piece, I think yesterday, on um, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan coming out for mm -hmm. um, uh, Bernie Sanders and how this was deeply perplexing and troubling to many Democrats because he is, in some ways, unsorted, right? It's very unsorted. He's a, someone who is, in, in many, in, in other respects, doesn't sound like a woke Democrat at all. Um, and I, so I, the, did you, I'm sure you read this, this, this we've, we've published a couple pieces and people got really mad at me on Twitter for defending Bernie Sanders on this point. Yeah. But so, yes, yeah, so there are a number of pieces on this. I think I've read them all. So I'm fascinated by so Joe th Rogan. This larger point is that the notion of, a, of Joe Rogan simultaneously being, um, you know, hostile to trans, not, I don't know what the best, but it's- Yeah, it's I wouldn't even go that- Not hostile. Well, just for people who don't know, just to, Joe Rogan is the most popular podcaster in the country who's not Malcolm Gladwell. 
and he, and he's a comedian, he used to do Fear Factor. Uh, he, has made, he has said a lot of things that are pretty awful, things that are transphobic, things that are racist, and he also, at the same time, holds a lot of progressive views. The particular, I mean, it's a, it's a he's a comedian. I mean, he's like a politically incorrect comedian. That's the best way to understand him, yeah. who's nevertheless probably leans left on most issues. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is 20 years ago, a figure like Joe Rogan would have been unremarkable in the sense of holding what now seemed to be, the notion that someone could, could hold unconventionally, unconventional positions would be fine. We'd be, fine. We'd be much happier with that than we are now. That's your argument. That's it. So that, I want to say, this is such an interesting point. He is unremarkable today. It is the political elite, like people who are highly engaged in politics and have sorted very intently, mm -hmm. who are more remarkable than him. Oh, I see. But the leadership yeah. of the parties and particularly the vocal wings on social media, they are incredibly sorted. But even today, most Democrats and most Republicans, particularly on policy, are unsorted. Um, they're, not, they're, they're just not down the line. They don't always know what they're supposed to believe on every issue, or they disagree on what they're supposed to believe on a lot of issues. This is part of what I think the article you read, if it's Matt's article, mm -hmm. is arguing that you cannot, there is not a political majority in this country composed of down the line woke yeah. liberals. That is a small political minority. If you want to win elections, you have to win over people. It doesn't literally have to be Joe Rogan, but it's going to be a lot of people who disagree with you on key things. Um, we are much more sorted than we used to be, but one, the, the, the reason I'm pushing is that it's important, I think, particularly for people who are very into politics to recognize that the thing about being very into politics is you are still much more weirdly sorted than the average person, including the average voter. Yeah. Jordan Peterson is also unsorted in the same way. He, I always struck, the pe I know that many people have strong reactions against him, but um, if you are, pay close attention to what he says, sort of half of what he says is more than acceptable to liberal people, and the other half is sort of not, and he just happens to be, the other weird thing about him is that he's Canadian, and if, you're, if you understand him as a Canadian, it's totally different. How, because I'm always fascinated by this because I think of Canadians, um, that he's a Canadian always seems very interesting to me because he's, like, whole... he's like a clenched fist of a human being. He's got this very combative demeanor. He's like a, like a very tight, whereas most Canadians I know are a little bit, they're kind of chill, they're a little bit conflict averse, Here polite. Here we go. Um, <laughs> the, well, so no, here's, the, here's my, here's You my... went through a whole thing on my podcast about your Canadian, Canadian identity and how there, there was like a, like a march at your school, but everybody thought it was great because like the kids are so cute and... It's true, it's true. <laughs> we, uh, no, no, I, I the, uh, yeah, there, there is something. I mean, I keep in mind that I'm from small town Canada, which is super chill Canada. I mean, if Canada's <laughs> chill, I came from like the chillest of... <laughs> but here's the Jordan Peterson thing, and it's an interesting point because it bears on this. Jordan Peterson, the reason it matters that he's Canadian is that... Um, a lot of what is threatening to liberals about Jordan Peterson um, is the extent to which he, his language mirrors the language of angry white male Republicans in America. But he's not an angry white male Republican in America. He is an angry Canadian. And if you're an angry Canadian, he's not in the ascendancy. He's not in power in Canada. He's a tiny, tiny 
minority. He's this, in a land of like super chill, woke liberals, he's like this one guy who's like, wait a minute, I'm unhappy with that. And like when you realize the man's, he's, he's a professor at the University of Toronto. He is the only one, I would venture to say that he's the only member of the faculty of the University of Toronto who is within shouting distance of the center of the political spectrum. <laughs> Everybody else is like, wait, say the left. Everyone else is way over here, right? So like in his world, he's like this lonely, embattled voice who is, who you know, no one takes seriously, no one's been listening to, he's, he's completely outside the mainstream. And when you understand that's what he is, it's sort of much easier to understand I, his. I have weaker opinions on Jordan Peterson than other people seem to. He basically seems to me to be a, like a highly symbolically masculine self-help author who has some extremely strong and combatively phrased opinions on social issues. And whenever you talk to him about, to a fan of his about him, mm -hmm. you end up in this like back and forth on, you're like, well, that was a crazy thing to say that Jordan, that um, Justin Trudeau is like, has a murderous equity doctrine because he, you know, supported a women's march. And they say, yeah, but that's not the real Peterson. What he really wants to do is like clean your room. And I just don't really care. What I would say about Peterson, about Rogan, about a lot of them, the sort of like intellectual dark web world, and then what I would say is actually I think broadly true for American politics in general, is that one thing you're seeing, which I, I think is actually important, is that we are watching, I think we are seeing the axis, the primary axis of political conflict change, which is, as you know, um, Peterson, Rogan, Sam Harris, a bunch of these guys, like they don't care about single-payer health care. They're fine with it. So on a lot of the things that would traditionally code the left-right divide in America, they're left. And there is a coalition there for them and Bernie Sanders and, and so on. Um, what they are very polarized on is what you might call the social justice divide. The thing that unites them is a distaste for political correctness, for social justice warriors, a feeling that you can't say the things you wanted to say. I mean, again, this Rogan thing gets it perfectly. Joe Rogan likes Bernie Sanders. Um, he says he's probably going to vote for him in the primary. I think he likes Bernie Sanders because of, you know, Bernie Sanders is authentic and left on economics and so on. And also is not particularly on a guttural level that woke. He now has a more woke policy agenda, but that's not what Bernie Sanders is in politics to do. And there is a loosening of the strictures on like the left-right economics divide. You see it with Donald Trump who ran for office saying, it's time for Republicans to stop fighting over taxes and Medicare and Medicaid and begin fighting about immigration or continue or deepen your fight on immigration. Tucker Carlson on Fox News is again trying to realign what his party is about by saying, it's time to compromise on things like taxes so we can really stop the browning of America. And so I think one of the things you see with a lot of these folks, to the extent Peterson has a politics, it's a politics about demographic change and the kinds of claims that new groups are making on language and how people get talked about and so on. Um, and that I think is increasingly the axis of conflict. I think people, if you go to YouTube politics, and I think YouTube politics is genuinely super important because where a lot of young people get their politics, 
it's not a politics about economics. It's not about what Washington was when you were there, I think, at the Washington Post, and when I was there at the Washington Post, where you could really tell where somebody was by whether or not they had signed Grover Norquist's anti-tax pledge. It is all about now, how do you feel about the collision over what we can and can't say and how we do and don't refer to people and is America a country founded on white supremacy and defined by institutional racism or not and what do you think about cages on the border and so on. So I do think we're in an era among other things of a realignment somewhat about what is the core axis of political conflict and Trump and Carlson express it in a more Republican way, Peterson in a maybe perhaps more Canadian way but this is something we're seeing that I think is important. Mm -hmm. But it goes Going back to the sorting notion, in a world where we are more, where, where we are less sorted, where we're, uh, we're surrounded by people who, who don't fit into very clear templates, mm -hmm. where all of their views don't line up according to a political label, um, uh, it, am I right that it's easier for us to kind of peacefully coexist with Rogans and Petersons? Like Peterson is, I once, well, before he got famous, when I was doing my David and Goliath book, I went to see him. He's actually quoted my David and Goliath book on, I forgot why. Um, and I went to see him and I spent the, and he lives, I always remember, he lives, um, uh, I don't know if you know Toronto. Toronto, the university is here. And north of the university is fancy, waspy, old money Toronto. It's Forest Hills, it's Rosedale, it's like blah, blah, blah. And then south of the university is like hipster Toronto, right? East of the university, east of Spadina and Bathurst, is like working class immigrant, really narrow little houses. Um, it's where you're, when you're not hip enough to be south of the university and you're not rich and white enough to be north of the university, right? By the way, east of the university is, oh, I'm sorry, this is west of the university. East is gay. I think I'm gonna straight. need you to draw this. Right, it's complicated. <laughs> Where is Jordan Peterson? Is he in Rich Waspy? No. Is he in Hipster? No. Is he in East, like gentrifying gay? No. He's in West. He's West of Spadina in a little narrow house. Like, oh, when you go there, you're like, oh, poor guy. He's like locked out of all the areas of privilege, fulminating against the establishment that's oppressing him. But it makes perfect sense. And by the way, it was the most interesting, I spent like four hours there, it was like the most fascinating four hours I've spent in maybe my entire life. It was, he was amazing, I was like, oh my God, this guy's the most. Wait, like, which one now, Rogan or Peterson? Well actually, I did Rogan as well. <laughs> Peterson, Peterson's like, in person he is mesmerizing. You just, it's the most interesting, I mean I couldn't recommend an afternoon with Jordan Peterson Moore. But you're in. I have to say, this living evening room, this, has taken a turn I didn't expect. His living room. If you take nothing away from my book, <laughs> it should be that you should have dinner with Jordan Peterson. No, no, I was gonna say, his living room is as wide as here <coughs> to there. Do you understand? I do, like, I think. <laughs> you have to sort of know your Toronto geography. You're like, oh, like I got his, he'd say, come to my house. And I got his address, Is like, you, that's where you live. It all made, Toronto was like very kind of clearly organized geographically. But anyway, I think, <laughs> I found this, this the, the, in your book, the most fascinating part was, to me was where you describe this fact about how we've, everything's starting to, there's an expectation, 
everything is starting to line up in a certain way and an expectation that everything should line up in a certain way. And when we encounter those who um, uh, break the mold in some way, we increasingly have problems with that. And I found that heartbreaking. That's the part of your book that like, it was very kind of emotional for me to like. I don't think, I think my book should be read as somewhat sad. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a happy book and it's not an easy book. It's about how a system is working. And the thing I was thinking about while you were um, uh, discussing that is that the book is in many ways about systems that collapse multidimensionality down to unidimensionality. We are yeah. multidimensional. As you were saying earlier, we have many identities, we have many ways of being in the world, and almost all of us are in deep ways unsorted. Politics, because of the way it functions, where it takes a huge issue space and a huge question space and eventually comes down to yes or no, right? Yes or no on the bill, this woman or that guy on the vote, who should be president, the Republican or the Democrat, eventually everything collapses down to these binaries. Yeah. And you are going to lose a tremendous amount in that. And it's not just there. I mean, I think about this on Twitter all the time, that Twitter is a place that takes complexity and collapses it down to simplicity. And we lose a tremendous amount of ourselves in that. There is nobody that I can think of that I like better or as much on Twitter, or even really like on Twitter, as much as I do in person. Twitter is a place that turns us into worse versions of ourselves because we lose our nuance, our complication. We lose so much mm -hmm. signal. And I mean, it's one reason that I like podcasts a lot, that it's a place where I can take people, pull them out of that, and have these much more expressive, much more complicated and nuanced discussions. But I think it's important to it is the case that politics is a collapsing down. Um, it is the case that at the same time that these things do not define us are also part of us. And so the question, I mean, in some deep way, the question in all these systems is simply, what are we designing? What are we designing for ourselves to do? One of the questions that people keep pushing on me on the book, because it's kind of dim on human rationality um, when it comes to politics. It talks a lot about how even very smart people tend to be more self-deceptive when it comes to politics is this question like, do I not believe that humans are rational? And the answer is sometimes I believe they are, sometimes I believe they're not. But you have to structure systems in the same way that markets channel self-interest and it can channel it for good or bad. Our ability to think, to reason, can be channeled towards thinking our way to where our group needs us to be or thinking our way to the truth or thinking our way to things just being interesting. Um, and I think, like journalism is a good example. I think when I came into journalism, which is still sort of the 90s kind of hangover of that new republic is the, the, the highest good in at least opinion journalism, that was about thinking to be interesting. I think it was often quite wrong, but it incentivized people to come up with a very interesting take. Mm -hmm. And now I think there is a push to think towards the group. Um, and that can be good and it can be bad, but it's just a way of structuring a system. And I think it's really important to have realistic understandings of it and what it does to us. Yeah. I was thinking um, along, the, along those lines, uh, your, uh, your friend and, and mine, Tyler uh, Cowan, has a, doesn't he always ask a question, which is what is your least, how does he phrase it? What is your least predictable opinion or? Um, what is the thing that you believe that people... Other people, the teal question, what do I believe oh, that other people believe the, is false? Yes. The, now, would you, I'm going to have you answer this question. Um, 
in a moment, but I wanted to say that um, it makes me wonder whether um, we shouldn't be leading with our teal question, our teal answer. So the, the teal question is, what is it? What is it? What is it again? What is it? What is it that you believe? What do you believe is true that most people believe is false? Yes, that tends to be now the thing about ourselves that we bury, and I wonder whether it should be the thing that we foreground in order to usefully complicate our image among um, with with each other. And the second thing that is that. I think it was maybe Tyler made the observation that when most people answer the teal question, they answer with something that is not um, a fact that most people believe is false. In other words, they can't answer the question. They're incapable of coming up with something about themselves that challenges conventional wisdom. What is, the, what is your answer to the teal question? I've answered this before. So the main one I give, but you can tell me if you think this is a cheat, I don't think it is, is that the, our entire system of animal agriculture is deeply immoral and participating in it is immoral and people shouldn't do it. It's not bad. That's like, you got some, if you got no applause, I would say you would really nailed it. <laughs> you got some applause. <laughs> it just says most people believe is false. It's, if oh, you I have see. something that literally everybody believes is false, like not to be a jerk, but you're probably wrong. <laughs> Like if literally everybody's like, that's not true, like, like be introspective. Well, I will only say, the, the, thing that, the, the odd thing about the teal question is that it's phrased as um, uh, true or false as opposed to acceptable or unacceptable. Mm -hmm. I would say you were answering, most people would simply, I actually believe what you said is true, but there's no way I'm gonna mm -hmm. give up me, <laughs> right? Is that, I mean, I, so I'm just aware of right. that. Right, that's that. where it might be a cheat. I actually think a lot of people believe that that statement is true, but not enough to act on it. Yeah. My, my but that's why I add the it's immoral at the end, because I think a lot of people believe like it's true, but unimportant. Oh, I see, oh, I see. So yeah. I added a judgmental yeah. Like, yeah. like jab at the end to, my, to make uh, it fit. My teal answer would be, uh, I think that all prisons should be shut down tomorrow for all offenders. I think that's a good answer. Didn't I hear you answer this once that you believe in ghosts? Am I crazy no. on the Tim Ferriss show? Yeah, I do believe in ghosts. So that's a good. Maybe that's more. That's, that's a more good answer I, to that question. I don't understand why that is. I, but the reason I don't, I don't do that anymore is that I'm genuinely baffled why people would believe that was false. Like, I just don't understand. What, on what grounds do you not believe in ghosts? Like, <laughs> Well, you somehow, you're like in your apartment in the Upper West Side, you have a handle on all of, like all manifestations of human existence. Like, I, I mean. I agree with this. I have a very deep belief that, um, I actually have a very deep belief that some subset of paranormal occurrences are true and we just are not sure which ones. Oh, that's interesting. I am certain that there is some signal in all that noise and I've like, I feel like I've done the reading here and I'm convinced, but I just don't know which noise, like which yeah. is noise and which is signal. Yeah. Well, I believe in ghosts because um, my uh, aunt and uncle who lived in a, 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 a former um, uh, plantation house in Jamaica on an old, like so once there were slaves there or whatever, um, their, the upstairs bedroom, one of the upstairs bedroom was haunted and they would say it had a, my aunt would tell me, because I was sleeping there, she would say, well, you know, it's the haunted room. Just be aware that 
there's a guitar in the corner and sometimes the ghost likes to play the guitar. I was like nine years old. And so I was like, okay. And in the middle of the night, sure enough, the guitar starts playing. So, I mean, <laughs> what have I left to conclude? It's a ghost, the ghost likes to play the guitar. Ghost plays the guitar in a, you know. Was it good? Yeah, I mean, it's fine. I, it was nine, I don't know. I don't know if it was good and bad guitar. But, um, so that's why, I don't know, you've heard the guitar. That's why we're polarized. That's why we're polarized. <laughs> Um, we have time. Oh, we have time for more questions. I wanted to um, uh, talk a little bit about, oh, and this, someone actually answers this. this um, uh, you talk about, ask a question along these lines. Um, local politics, mm -hmm. you make this, I'm remembering in the section of the book where you talk about local politics, you point out, and it's so hilariously true, that we obsess about our national political representation, even though we have almost no chance to influence it, but most people can't tell you who their um, council member is, mm -hmm. and that's actually someone who you have a real chance to influence. Yeah. So it's deeply irrational that we don't know who our council person is, and we do know who our senator is. Um, and you say it would be really healthy if we were somehow to reverse that. How does one, what does that look like? Do you think we should all be, because every, you know, should we all be showing up at those council meetings that go on for seven hours and? I mean, not, I've been to those, they're not great. Um, <laughs> it it look looks like constructing an informational ecosystem mm -hmm. that gives you a lot of that information. So you, you, I mean, it's really easy here because you guys get, you guys have the New York Times. The New York Times is an amazing newspaper, and it's not just an amazing newspaper on national and international issues, but it's an amazing local paper, too. They do a wonderful job. So that's as easy as making sure that the thing you check every day, once a day, is the homepage of the local section of the New York Times, and you're just following that story. And I mean, New York in general, among the many reasons I hate it and the place, and mm -hmm. it's there's so much coverage of local New York politics. There are three New York mayors who have been involved in the 2020 race this year, <laughs> and three New York Southern District prosecutors who have yeah. reasonable roles in impeachment. And so there's like so much ability to follow local New York politics that it's really easy. In other places, it's harder. But in most places, it just really is the case that you can attach yourself to local news sources. I mean, for me in San Francisco, um, it means like reading the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, I'm subscribed to the LA Times because they do a lot of good like overall California coverage. But it's become something you have to, and this is a big point I'm making there, it's become something that most people in most places have to work to do. Again, it's easier I think specifically here, but when I grew up in Orange County, we got the LA Times. Um, and I'm sure that if I was growing up there now, we would, it would just be an online subscription to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Right, that people are sort of gravitating to these national news sources. I would hopefully, like, I would read Vox. I would listen to Revisionist History. Um, like, you, would, there's so much ability to have national news now. So you actually have to consciously construct news sources and news habits that give you local and state news. And oftentimes it means subscribing because they have different business models. And so um, that's a thing you can do, but you have to be intentional. And something I argue in the book is seeing identities as something that other people are manipulating in you, the logical next step is be intentional about which identities you want to be activating, strengthening, reinforcing, et cetera. And you can do that through constructing you know, uh, your informational and, role. And, and you talk about how 
a generation ago, when you asked people where they were from, they were much more likely to name the immediate place they're from. Yes. And now they're much more likely to name some larger. Yeah. So you used to say, you would, years ago you would say you were from the town that you grew up in in Irvine, and now you say you're a Californian. Or even more an American. American. Um, yeah. So state, so there's like a lot of great, a great in, information on this, but state and regional identities are supposed to be in American politics our most powerful ones. It's why the whole thing is built on states and districts. Um, we don't represent people. Senators represent states. Um, members of the House represent districts. Uh, one of my favorite studies in the book, which comes from, there are too many political scientists named Hopkins, and they're all named either Daniel or Dave. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple of them named, so some Hopkins. But it's a good book called The Increasing United States. And one of the studies he runs is he looks at um, literature over time in America using Google Ngram, and he codes out for how many times people say, I'm an American, or I'm American in it, versus I am a Virginian, New Yorker, Californian, Rhode Islander, et cetera. And for a lot of American history, the state identities are more common in writing. And it's only after the 60s that I'm an American outpaces and never looks back against our state identities. And that's super fascinating. And then just the other one I'll mention is that when you ask people to say why they're proud of identities, and they have done this on, on national and state, when people talk about national, they actually tend to choose things that are somewhat political. I'm proud of an American because I believe in freedom, because I believe in equality, because I believe in... And when you ask them about why they're proud of where they're from more regionally, they tend to use geographic things. I'm a California, I'm proud to be a Californian because we have cool beaches and it's sunny, unlike here. Um, and, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so like even that has receded in terms of understanding that as an identity that has values in it as opposed to geographic features. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. When, what happens when you go, is that true even at the level of like if I say I'm really proud to be from Queens, when I've, when I've retreated even beyond, below the state identity, what am I, am I, am I appealing to, to um, features or am I appealing the values of that? Point? I don't know, it's a great question. Yeah. I don't, but what, yeah, I don't know what the values of Queens specifically are. No, no, I'm just talking in general though, if I'm talking about my town, yeah. I mean I can imagine a moment in the 18th century where if I said where are you from, you would have said the town, you wouldn't have even yeah. said, that you were a Virginian, you would have said I, that you were a, yeah. a, you know, a Richmondian, Richmond, <laughs> whatever that particular. In, um, I always do this in Canadians, uh, I always say I'm from Canada because I just assume that no one in America, if I say I'm from, you know, Waterloo, everyone will think I'm from Iowa. Or Are you um, from Waterloo? I'm from, yeah, I'm from, in, do you, does that have meaning for you? No, I just in, did not know there was a Waterloo, Canada. What I'm fascinated. Think, remember when you had a Blackberry? Where do you think that was made? Waterloo. <laughs> University of Waterloo. I didn't have a Blackberry. I mean, just to go back. <laughs> <Yeah. or. laughs> we had our brief moment in the sun or some. We're almost done. Um, uh, I wanted to point out that there was a, great, a glaring exception to this principle, which I observed when I was on my book tour, which is when you're doing, you know, sometimes when you're doing these events, they pass the mic around and, to people. and you know, they say, over here, and the person asks a question. And you're always obliged as the person on stage to move around. Mm -hmm. You pick someone from the left yeah. and someone from the middle, which of course is 
nonsense. <laughs> right? Like, why does it matter? Like, and it's because in the short time people have been in the audience, they have assumed an identity based on where they are in the audience. That's actually and a great feel, point. It's, they feel it's totally slighted. True. Yes. If you don't ask anyone from the left, they're like, what's going, what, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> you have some problem with the left? I will say, when you all read the book, that is a very relevant point to the chapter about Henry Tajfel. Yes, yes, that's right. That's a, we, we will, well, I will leave that. I think that this is, I think our time is up. We don't um, have to, let's get a couple questions. We okay. did not do like right. any questions. Well, I did ask, uh, um, I did ask uh, one. I, I, I massaged it a little bit. Um, <laughs> how about this? Um, is there any level of polarization you can imagine that would make it impossible for us to continue as a single country? Absolutely. I mean, we almost had it. That's what the Civil War was. Um, I, I don't mean that glibly. I, I mean, I think it's actually important to say polarization isn't new. It's not the first time we've had it. You can have much more than this, and it can be much more dangerous. Um, the thing, I will give you my scary thought but experiment. Wait, can, I just, can I just do a slight corrective on the Civil War? What's, I don't know a lot about it. The little reading that Go I've on. done on it, though. What's that? Go on. <laughs> the little reading that I've done on it, though, I'm always struck by the extent to which that thing, which comes up in some of that, you know, families were pitted against each other for no, they found them, you know, you found yourself fighting for the North against your cousins who happened to be in the South. Mm -hmm. Or there was a, I remember reading about the Battle of, um, uh, of Chancellorsville, and the, the North is on the North side of the, of the Rappahannock, and the South, Southern Army is on the South side of the Rappahannock, and they're like, dug in there for like weeks and weeks and weeks, and nothing's happening. And they start a trade where the, the Southerners will send uh, tobacco across the river to the North, and the North will send, I forgot what it is, something to the guys in the South. And then they would sing songs on either side and you know, and like you realize like at that level, they weren't polarized, they were like, you know what I mean? Like the, there was this kind of, most of the people fighting for the South were not slave owners. They were people who were. This I think goes to what we were talking about earlier. And I think it's actually a, an important point to say, polarization isn't a fractal phenomenon. It's yeah. not something where if you keep looking at it at smaller and smaller scales, it exhibits the same characteristics. Um, it's internally contradictory. It changes. It's, mm -hmm. you know, you're polarized North and South, but then as you say, if you met, you know, if people from the two armies like met, they were not polarized. So political polarization can go way up in very, very dangerous ways, even as the country isn't polarized on key things. Um, but I don't, my point yeah. is that I'm, I'm struggling. I don't think the level of polarization, this is to, to, goes to the question. The kind of polarization that we're seeing now is not like the kind of po polarization we saw in the Civil War. That struck me as a kind of, it was, uh, the Civil War on some level was about a, the, the inability of the political system to handle the inherent contradiction in the founding of America. We don't have, we've solved that inherent contradiction. Now we're on a different kind of, aren't we? On a different kind of problem? I mean, I would, I don't think we are going to have a civil war over slavery. I agree that we're not gonna be politically polarized over that, I hope not. Um, but, I think the place where political polarization gets very dangerous, um, or one of the places it can get very dangerous, is that it creates, it organizes around conflicts 
that it can keep the political system itself from solving. Um, mm -hmm. Our political system does not work well amidst polarization because majorities can't govern. Polarization um, makes it very hard to get the bipartisanship you need to govern. So the kind of scary example I will give is if you imagine the fractures of just mid 20th century America, that 19, like think about just 1968. Mm -hmm. If you imagine that level of violence, if you imagine those assassinations, if you imagine the very fundamental questions being asked, but you imagine it in this political system where they all organize by party. I'm not saying that tears apart. I'm not saying we go into yeah. civil war, but I am saying that is where I imagine things beginning to look very bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, it's some, like countries don't last forever. I mean, at some point something yeah. will happen. And so I do think we should worry about, it is a distinctive thing about America that is able to make tremendous progress on civil rights in the 60s because though race had kept America from being polarized for a period and doing something like civil rights would repolarize it, it needed that depolarized period for the Civil Rights Act to pass. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like an interesting contradiction. It was depolarization that permitted it, and in doing that, in spending that depolarization on the Civil Rights Act, the cost was polarization. It was a price worth paying, and I think it's something we can manage. But, um, but polarization plus a political system that does not work amidst polarization is a very dangerous structure, and it's why no other system that works like ours has a hundred-year history of constitutional continuity or more. We are the only ones who have made that work. Mm -hmm. It's because our system collapses amidst polarization, and one of the arguments for why we made it work is we weren't polarized for a long time, which is a scary thing to think about for our future. What, which, what, and one last question, and then we really do have to wrap up, but does that suggest, though, that, um, that this was a thought I had when reading your book, that there is a, there is a natural end point to this cycle that you're describing, which is that all of the demographic trends point to a ascendant Democratic Party majority. So maybe what hap maybe our way out of it is that you know Republicans are much older. All immigration trends are towards the Democrats. Texas is going to be Democratic really soon. You know, when that point. Doesn't, when you get a, when you get a, can't we reset around a Democratic Party within a generation? I think that the, I think the most optimistic story to tell is that California story. California looked a lot like the national conflicts we're having a generation ago. Pete Wilson, Prop 187. It was very similar arguments and not exactly similar people, but you had some of the same. But the demographic change swamped that. And now you can't have a political party in California that is anti-immigrant in that way that doesn't um, at least nod towards diversity and inclusion. The, like, the positive path is California, the negative path is disenfranchisement, which is a political party that does hold a lot of power, that feels itself losing, begins changing the system. Um, you have things like the Supreme Court decision on public sector unions. There are, you know, you've seen in um, North Carolina specifically, um, a lot of, as Republicans have lost gubernatorial power, trying to change the constitution so they keep power anyway. The demographic change, just kind of solving some of these problems and making the system reflect its majorities more than it does now, that's a good outcome. And majorities changing the system so that uh, the political, a minority that holds political power changing the system so majorities cannot take political power is the scary the, legitimacy crisis outcome. Yeah. The, the, the former of those two possibilities, the most elegant way I've heard 
to describe it is, comes from the, um, the Charlemagne the God, you know, the host of The Breakfast Club, um, who described the Trump administration as uh, the white guy's Hail Mary, <laughs> which I've always There's loved. There's something to it. Um, on that note, Ezra, thank you very much. You've written a fascinating book. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92y.org archives.